Well, good morning, Edgewater. It is a privilege to open up God's Word with you again this morning as we continue in a sermon series that we began last week entitled, What is the Gospel? We're taking five weeks to examine this core message of the Christian faith, this this encapsulation of what it is that's at the center of what we believe about God, about ourselves, about our world, and ultimately about God's redemption plan through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why we're doing this series, by the way. I mentioned last week that there were three reasons I was pointing to. I'll I'll recap them briefly. The first is that some of you uh, are, are maybe clicking these links online. You're not regularly a part of our church family, but you're curious. Maybe the events of the world have caused you to ask some deeper questions than you've been asking before. Or maybe they've just motivated you to seek the answers to the questions that you have been asking. And so I wanted to do a message for folks like you, where you could hear what really is the core message of the Christian faith. What does God have to say to you? And of course, I want to do this message for those of us who are a part of the church, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us over and over again that we need to be reminded of the gospel that it's not just an entry point. It's not just something that we receive at first, uh, that first moment of faith and then walk away from. But the gospel is something that we walk in daily, looking to Christ and who he is and what he's done and what our identity is in him as what we need daily to be reminded of. So it's for us as well in that regard. I also hope it helps those of you who know Christ be able to share in a maybe a more succinct way what it is that we believe. And then the third thing I mentioned is related to this moment that we're in. These are dark and difficult days. I don't have to tell you that. This pandemic, the lockdown, the fear, the anxiety that all of this is causing is causing us to ask, all of us probably ask deeper questions than we were asking before. And I want us to know that God's Word speaks to those questions. We started last week in the important place to start when it comes to understanding what's the gospel, what is the good news message that God has given to us, that we start with who He is. We start with who He is. And so when we ask the deep questions that we're probably asking, these existential questions like, what is the meaning of life? Are you asking that right now? Or we ask questions like, what's the purpose? What's my purpose in life? That we can look to the Word of God and see how God reveals Himself to us and find answers to those deep questions I want to give you two brief answers to that question. What is the meaning and the purpose of life and my life? The first one comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And what that catechism does is it takes the whole of God's Word and it sort of distills it down into statements that tell the whole story, that kind of bring it to center and help us to to know and remember it in succinct ways. And the first question that's asked in that catechism is, what's the chief end of mankind? In other words, what's our purpose? What's the meaning? And the answer that is given there from the word is, man's kind, mankind, excuse me, chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I also want to point you to 
a quote from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was praying to the Father, and he said this. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent See, the gospel, that word gospel, again, means good news. And good news is good because it points us to the answer for our biggest question. And it leads us to a knowledge of and enjoyment of God. What's the meaning and purpose of life? It's to know Him, to glorify God. And enjoy him. And that's why we began last week our gospel story with who is God, who God is. We need to know that God is knowable. That's an amazing thing, by the way. This God who is infinite and in that sense unfathomable is at the same time reliably knowable because he's revealed himself to us through his word and through his son. So here's what I wanted you to take away from last week. If you missed it, I hope you'll go back. But if you didn't and you want the cliff notes, here it is. Here's what I wanted us all to take away. The first thing about God is that he's the creator. He's the creator. He is the eternal, preexistent one who made everything else. Everything we see and taste and touch and smell and hear and experience, including ourselves. He made it all. And therefore, he is the owner of it all. He's the rightful uh, ruler of it all. It all belongs to him because it all came from him. He made it. So he's the creator. The second thing was that he's good. Right? It's not good news to know that there's a creator who owns everything if he's a bad person. But he's not. This God is a good God, meaning he is perfect in holiness, righteousness, kindness, justice, etc. God is the creator and God is good. That was the gist of last week's foray into who is this God. There's one more thing I, I want to talk about, about who God is before we move into today's main topic, which deals more with who are we? Who are we as humanity? The thing I want us to know about God is that God is also relational. So he's the creator, he's good, he's also relational. The Bible is full of Trinitarian language about God, meaning that God is is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is one God who exists in three persons. Now, I don't have time to to unpack a a Trinitarian message here today. That's not the point of today's message. But I think it's important that we understand that 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 depiction of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, that relational picture, permeates the whole Bible. We see it even here in the beginning chapter of Genesis where we already heard from a little bit this morning. God created. The Father acts, right? The Spirit is hovering over the waters of the world yet unformed. And he spoke into existence all things. That speaking is his word. And the book of John tells us in chapter 1 that the word of God, the logos of God, is the son of God. 
So even right here in Genesis 1, we see evidence of that. Father, Son, and Spirit. We also saw it in the creation account. Let us make man in our image. There's plural language there for God. God is in relationship. Now, I tell us that because I'm ready to now move into something about us. God, who has created us, has made us in his image. That's what we were read earlier from Genesis. So we have been made, we're, we're unique in all of creation, humanity, men and women, as something that, that looks like, is meant to image the God who made us. That's not true of rocks or water or trees or even animals. Humanity has this unique position. And that means something. If God is the creator who is good and relational, then we as his created image bearers are also made to be good and made for relationship. Why is that important? It's important for this one really important reason. This is, this is something I hope you grab onto. Mankind, you and I, have so much potential. I know it's you know, reformed churches like ours, of those of you who know what that means, you know, I'm fairly reformed in my preaching. You kind of expect that I'm going to talk about God as holy and right and good and then immediately turn and talk about mankind as depraved and evil and full of sin. But I, I, I don't want to go there first because the Bible doesn't go there first. We'll get there. But what the Bible does immediately upon creation is remind us that we are made in the image of God. We have so much potential to be good and righteous, just, loving, and self-giving, just as he is. And we were made then to be relational, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another and glorified one another throughout all eternity, God made us to then have relationship with Him in a vertical way and then relationship with one another in a horizontal way. Of course, we see that in the creation of Adam and Eve. Plurality, just like God exists in plurality. So we have this amazing potential. Now, of course, when we then move to the next step and we consider who we are as humanity, we say, well, if we have all this potential to be good and righteous and just as God is, then why don't we see that happening all the time? Why, why can't I even look at myself and see consistency in those kinds of attributes? And the reason, of course, we know is that something's wrong. Something went bad. And Genesis chapter 3 begins to explain to us then what happened, which is why I had that chapter read to us as well. Let me just highlight a couple of things. What went wrong? The beginning of chapter 3, we see the appearance of the serpent. The serpent shows up in the garden and approaches Eve. And the serpent, we're told in Scripture on a couple of different occasions, is, is the devil. It's Satan himself. Satan is a, was an angel who was also created by God to be good and right and just and holy, but in his pride, he rebelled against God, and God cast him out of heaven. Where? Earth. So he's roaming the earth, and he shows up in the garden, and he does a couple of key things with Eve. The first is he attacks 
who God is, at least in her estimation, right? What is God like? So he begins to question her a little bit. He says, did, did God really say that, you, that you, you, you can't have any of these trees? You can't have any of this fruit? And, 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 and there's an implication here as she begins to engage with him that, God, that, that Satan is saying to Eve, listen, God's trying to hold something back from you, right? Eve says, no, we can have any tree, but we can't have this one, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he, she says, if we eat of that, we're going to die. And Satan's like, really? You won't really die. In other words, what, what God's really doing here is he's, he's not trying to do something good for you in prohibiting that tree. He's trying to hold back from you. He's not really good. He's not really giving. He's not really righteous in that regard. He's, he's sneaky. He's holding back, right? He's, Satan is undercutting this notion of who God is as a good creator. And the second thing that Satan does here is he, he begins to attack what God has said, how God has revealed himself, right? So he twists the words did God really say that? And he says it very opposite of how God said it. God didn't say you can't have any of these trees, but Satan says that's what God said, right? Did he really say that? And then Eve begins to quote back kind of what God said, but even now she's getting confused and she's getting it wrong. And what happens? We have an attack on not only who God is, but an attack on what God has said. And it leads then to Adam and Eve disobeying that order, disobeying God's good command to limit them from something. What was it that he was limiting them from? Nothing good, only the knowledge of evil. And as a result of their disobedience, there's a broken relationship now with God, a broken relationship with each other, and a broken relationship with the world that they were created to inhabit. I'll talk about those three things a little bit more in depth, but I want to go back to this core question of what is sin? So they disobeyed, they sinned. Sin enters the world, things begin to go awry. What does that mean? What is sin? Now, I suppose most people's definition of sin would be something like this. Sin is breaking the rules. Maybe that's the way you've heard it. Maybe that's the way you would describe it. But I want to suggest that that's an overly simplistic and inadequate way of describing the problem of sin. L let me put it to you this way. Let's say that I was walking along the beach with a small child. We're walking along the shore hand in hand. And as we're walking along, the two of us witness a fish jump out of the water and land on the shore and begin to flop and flail around as it's gasping for and searching for oxygen. And as we witness this happen, suppose that the, the, the little child, very confused, looks up to me and, and, and asks me, what happened? Why is this fish dying? Now suppose my answer was, well, he broke the rules. He, he, the rule was that fish should stay in the water, and, and he didn't do it. And so, you know what? He deserves what he gets. Would that be a very satisfying answer? 
And there's actually some truth to it, but, but it's, it's not really a comprehensive description of what just happened, is it? The fish just sort of broke the rules? The better answer would be for me to say, you know, the fish is dying because the fish isn't being what it was created to be. That's what we're seeing before our eyes. These, these rules, if you will, of staying in the water aren't just arbitrary rules for fish. That rule exists because it's a, it's a parameter for life. The fish, if it had this conscious decision to jump out of the water, would be denying its true identity. That's what sin really is. It's, it's a refusal to find our true identity as image bearers of a triune God who made us for relationship with himself. I want to say that again because that's a key definition that I want you to understand. What is sin? It's, it's, it's this refusal to find our true identity as image bearers of God, and I'll say it this way, the God of the Bible who made us for relationship with himself. Another way to say that would be it's an attempt to get an identity apart from God and apart from his created intent for us. Remember again what I said earlier is our created purpose from the Westminster Catechism and from Jesus' words himself. It's to know God. To know Him, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever. And then by extension, it's to relate to one another and to the world that He made us uh, in as His image bearers, which, which means to relate with goodness and righteousness and justice and loving kindness and so on. So what sin is, is when we say to God, no, I don't need an identity in you. I don't want to, to submit myself to your, your uh, design for me in that regard. I would rather find my identity somewhere else. I'll look to myself. I'll look to maybe some other thing that you've created. But I'm not looking to you. I'm going to order my life around something else to find my purpose and my worth and my significance. That's what sin is. And when that happens, when we do that, we become false worshipers. Now, some of you might say, false worshipers? I, I wouldn't consider myself to be a worshiper of anyone or anything at all. But I want you to know that that's not true. Everyone, in fact, whether they realize it or not, is a worshiper. Why? Well, first of all, because you were created to be one. You can't really help it. God made you to be a worshiper. But, but you become a false worshiper when you redirect that worship away from, again, the Creator onto a created thing. How do you do that, you might ask? Well, the, the etymology of the English word worship might be helpful here. The word uh, comes from the, the, the combining, really, of, of two words together, 
that will make more sense. Worship is the combination of worth and ship. Worthship. So, so in other words, whatever we ascribe worth to, and in this sense, ultimate worth to, where do you find your worth? Where do you find your identity, etc.? What you ascribe ultimate worth to becomes what you worship. You are, you are giving it worthship. And so, of course, when, when that happens, we end up breaking all kinds of rules. If we look to the Ten Commandments as a, as a model for rule-breaking or rule-keeping, the rule-breaking that w- which we would commonly think of and call sin, consider what's there. To break the Ten Commandments is to, is to lie, to steal, to be envious or covetous, to commit adultery or, or murder. When we do those things, you have to understand that, that you're breaking those rules because something has, has altered your identity. You're having an identity issue that's causing you to have a tremendous insecurity. Why do you lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery? Because whatever it is that you've placed value in is being threatened by something and you're reacting to it. Right? So when you're breaking any of those Ten Commandments and breaking a rule, understand what's under that. It's an identity issue. And of course, if you're breaking any of those rules you've first and foremost broken the very first of the commandments, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. The only reason you're breaking any of the other rules is because you've put some other god before him. And these rules, by the way, the commandments, or any other moral command from Scripture, they're not just arbitrary either. Like with the fish analogy earlier, these rules aren't arbitrary. They exist because they're, they're parameters for life. They're parameters for helping us to be what we were intended to be, to live life the way we were meant to live it. So when we are grasping and envious and covetous and lying and treating one another with contempt in any way, we're being the opposite of the self-giving, loving, righteous, and just image of God that we were created in. Now, you might ask, is that a big deal? Is sin a big deal? Well, I want you to remember what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, like the fish, if you step out of those parameters, you will surely die. So let's talk about what that looks like. What does this surely you will die look like? Let's talk about what sin does. First and foremost, what sin does is that it separates us from the God we were created to be in relationship with. That's the biggest effect of sin. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have fallen, there's, God comes in and He pronounces judgment on that sin, and, and He casts them out of the garden, right? 
He puts up a, 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 a cherub, that's an angel, with a flaming sword and sort of hides and guards the entrance back into the garden. They are now separated from his presence. So that's the first thing and the most significant thing that happens is our relation with God is now broken. What flows out of that then is that it also then separates us, sin, from ourselves, our true selves, from each other, and from the world. Tim Keller does a really good job in his book, A Reason for God, of of categorizing those into kind of modern categories that help us to think about what those effects, what those consequences really look like. So he talks about the personal consequences of sin, the social consequences, and then the cosmic consequences. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about personal consequences. This is how we're separated from ourselves, our true our true selves, our true identity as we were meant to live. If we understand that, that sin is a matter of lost identity, Keller says, Look, we begin to see how sin destroys us personally. Identity apart from God is inherently unstable. Without God, our sense of worth might seem solid on the surface, but it never is. It can desert you in a moment. I want you to listen to how theologian Thomas Oden describes this same issue, this same problem. He says, suppose my God, little g God, the thing that I've put my identity in other than God himself, suppose my God is sex, or my physical health, or the Democratic or Republican Party. He says, if I experience any of these under genuine threat, then I feel myself shaken to the depths. Guilt becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized or made gods out of finite values. Suppose my identity is found in my social standing or in my my career title. If this status has become an absolute value for me, a center of value that, that, that takes all of my other values and makes them valuable, then what happens if I fail? If I fail, I'm stricken with neurotic guilt. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and something or whatever is my ultimate value. So what happens then? Well, if that's the way it is, then I become paralyzed by fear. Fear of losing whatever it is that's become my ultimate value. And again, if my identity is built on anything other than God, that insecurity is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Nothing apart from God is guaranteed. You know, I think if the coronavirus crisis has taught us anything, it's got to be that. I would hope that it's taught us this. Anything and everything we might look for, for our security, our identity, can be swept away in a moment. That's, by the way, why addictions happen. We have this search for security that often drives us to turn to even good things and, turn and, 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 and ask them to become ultimate things. 
we have to have them, right? And when we have to have them, then they become enslaving to us. And that's not just true of addictions like drug or alcohol or, or sex, but it's, it's true of things like work or family or achievement. A life centered on God leads to fulfillment. A life not centered on Him leads to emptiness. And here's the, here's the crazy thing. Building our lives on something other than God not only destroys us when we don't get what we want, but it destroys us even when we do get what we want. That's kind of a difficult thing for a lot of us to, to fully grasp because most of us are living lives saying, I haven't yet obtained all that I'm really dreaming for or hoping for. And, but maybe if I did, I'd be happy. But when we look to the very few people who actually can say, I have obtained all that I ever hoped for or dreamed for in this life, you'll find that many of them will tell you that it didn't satisfy them. And in fact, not only did it not satisfy them, but it caused them to be even more in despair because they realized after they had achieved their wildest dreams, they still woke up the next morning and found that they were just still themselves. The same insecure, unfulfilled me. One writer puts it this way when that happens. That she says, this kind of disillusionment turns people into howling and insufferable people. We weren't made to find our worth in created things. So sin destroys us personally. That's the first thing. The second is that, that sin also has social consequences. It doesn't just destroy us personally, but it destroys the social fabric Ask yourself this, why is it that Adam and Eve's sin didn't just destroy their vertical relationship with God, but also messed up their horizontal relational, relational harmony with each other? Why? Well, this is actually not hard to think about, so think about it with me. If, if my highest good in life is my own individual worth and happiness, that's going to automatically put my own needs above everybody else's needs, right? It's going to drive me to a selfishness that pushes away and devalues other people. If my highest goal in life is the good of my own family, then I'll have to care less for other families. If my highest good is my own economic success, then I'll place my own economic and power interests above the interests of you and everybody else. If my highest goal is the good of my own nation or political party or my race, then I'll tend to be a racist or ideologically intolerant or nationalistic. If I'm profoundly proud of being a very tolerant and open-minded person, well, then I'm going to be indignant towards those that I think are bigots. And if I'm a very moral person, I'm going to feel superior to all of those that I might categorize as being licentious or less moral than me. You see, this is a list that could go on and on forever. There's, there's no way out of this conundrum. There's no way out of it. 
it's impossible to have a self-oriented identity that doesn't lead to some kind of exclusivism. And then society breaks down. Every instance of neglect, abuse, oppression, disunity, divorce, disownment, every war or conflict, every abandonment, injustice, and every other form of relational failure can be traced back to the destructive power of the personal and social breakdown caused by sin. The self-giving, justice-loving, other-centered image of God that we were created in and for is destroyed by identities that love the self. So sin is destroying us socially as well as personally. And then thirdly, the curse of sin has one more devastating consequence. It has cosmic consequences. So personal consequences, social consequences, cosmic consequences. It affects the the world that, that we live in, the universe that we dwell in. Remember that at the end of Genesis 3, not only were they cast out of the garden, separated from God, not only were they given strife with one another, you shall, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, but they were also told that this, this work that you were able to do in the garden is now going to become toil. It's going to produce thorns. Things are going to begin to die and break down and you're going to sweat to do your work. That's, a, that's a, a, a radical shift from the original picture of creation that we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. What we see there is this world that's teeming with life. It's teeming with abundance. Everything is ordered. Everything is sustainable. It's this remarkable picture of utopia. It's, it's a paradise. And there's work to be done there. There's a garden to tend, but again, that work is enjoyable. It's without toil. It's always producing. It's always successful. And the Bible has a word for this. In the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, there's, there's this word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word or familiar with it. You might know that it means peace, but it means a, a kind of peace that, that we don't really grasp in the English language. It's not just a peace that's the absence of conflict. But it's a peace that's marked by wholeness and harmony and flourishing. Shalom. That's that's the world of Genesis 1 and 2. But when sin enters the world, when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God, remember, this this is human sin, right? It doesn't just affect them in their relationships, but it it ruins the shalom of the planet. It ruins the shalom of the cosmos, bringing toil and decay into creation. Everything unravels. And when that happens, we see things like disease and genetic disorders and famine and natural disasters and aging and and death. All are the result of sin. Just like war and crime and violence are the result of sin All of the breakdown of the environment is a result of sin. Now, I want want to 
ask you to recall what I asked you last week. Remember I asked you, are you angry at God for the coronavirus? And, and I said to you, if you are, don't be. The, the, the reason you might be tempted to be is because you say, well, Bill, if you just said God is the creator and that, therefore he's the, he's the ruler and owner of it all, he's in control of everything, right? And he's good, then why would he allow something like the coronavirus or any other disease or sickness to, to infect this world? And I said, don't be, don't be angry at God. He's not responsible for this. Now you know why I said that. The answer to the question, who's responsible for this, is we are. It's human sin that, that brings decay and disease and death and disorder into the world. Human sin is the origin of cosmic breakdown. You know, it, there's a temptation when things go awry in the world, things like that, that feel like these are, these are acts of God. In fact, we use phrases like that. These are acts of God. And we, we might say something like, you know, we want to shake our fists at God and say, why would, you, why would you do this? Why would you allow something like this to happen? But if we have a really biblical understanding of who he is and, and who we are, the right response would be to consider that God is looking at us and saying, why did you allow this to happen? Why, why are you responsible for this? Is sin a big deal? Yeah. It's not just devastating to us, to our relationships, and to the cosmos. If that wasn't bad enough, let me come back around to where I started. Most importantly, it's an offense against God. The God who made us for himself. Remember again who he is. He is the creator. That means we are accountable to him. And he is good. He's righteous and just and holy and perfect and loving. And he made us in an image to look like him. So when we don't, it's an offense. It's treason. It's a big deal. You might be tempted to say, as a lot of modern people are, well, I don't really see myself as a sinner. I don't, I don't consider myself to be a sinner. At least not like other people that I know. I'm a good person. Well, if you're a good person, then I want you to consider that the good that you exhibit is evidence of that, that created purpose your potential. There is still an image of God in mankind. And when we see acts of good and we see love and we see uh, selflessness, right? We, we can see that image still there. The problem is, is that image is marred by sin. We don't consistently live that way. We don't consistently act that way. To say that we're a good person is a declaration that the Bible can't make about us because it says, no, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous, not even 
one. That's what the Bible says about us. We can't make the claim that we're not a sinner. John says when we say something like that, we lie. And that's breaking a commandment that automatically makes you a sinner. Look, you really don't have a choice. The curse of Adam and Eve's sin affected all of humanity. It affected all of the universe. You were born into that. You were born under that curse. You are incapable of not being sinful. And you know that if you consider your own heart, right? You know that you're, you're, you're not perfect. You don't measure up to the high moral standard. And you know that that's not just true by nature. It's true by choice. You choose that. You know, the standard isn't how you stack up to others. That's not the standard. It's how you stack up to God and the image that He created you to reflect. We have to admit, we have to come to a point of admission, I am not what I was meant to be. The world is not what it was meant to be. And if I'm accountable to God for that, I have to take personal responsibility for that and admit that I have a problem. And you do have a problem. And here's the problem, the biggest problem that you have. God will judge sinners. God must judge sinners. And the wages of sin is death. You need to know that the Bible speaks of not just a physical death, but of an eternal punishment for sin. It's called hell. Now, hell's not a popular concept, and hell is a difficult thing to swallow, especially in, again, a kind of a modern Western culture like ours, where we have a hard time reconciling judgment and love. Is God unjust, in other words, to punish sin? How can God be both loving and judging? How can a loving God be an angry God? How can a God of love send people to hell? There's an answer to a question like that. If you really think about it, it's not that far-fetched. I get asked questions like this often, and, and, and my response is, think about your own sense of love. Are, are, are you not sometimes as a measure of your love filled with wrath? Not despite of your love, but because of your love. Because of your love. Why wouldn't God be angry with and do away with that which destroys that which He loves? Let me, let me give you a couple of quick quotes that will help kind of maybe drive this point home a little bit. The first is from Becky Pippert. She says, Think how we feel when we see someone that we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. So imagine with her, right? You, you've got a daughter or a son or a spouse or, or a friend, someone that you care deeply about, and you see them wandering off into very unwise territory, unwise decision-making, unwise relationships. Do you respond, she asks, do you respond with benign tolerance? Like they were a stranger and you don't really care what they do? She says, no, far from it. Anger 
isn't the opposite of love, she says. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. Anger, on the other hand, the final form of that, when, when guided by love, is action. It's, it's to do something about it. And so she says, God's wrath is not some cranky explosion. It's his settled opposition, listen to this, to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. Here's another quote from Miroslav Volf. He says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. And if you think about that, he's absolutely right. If you think about your own sense of justice versus injustice, you'd you'd recognize that you agree with that. I don't want to live in a world where injustice goes unpunished. I don't want to live in a world where unrighteousness is sort of swept under the rug like it never happened. Where victims of oppression and abuse are just sort of said, eh, sorry, right? And you don't want to live in a world like that either. We demand justice, and we ought to, because justice is a measure of love for what's right and good. Now, here's the flip side of that coin, though. I don't want to live in a, in a world that, 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 that leaves injustice unpunished, but I don't want that punishment to fall on me when I do something that's unjust or unrighteous. And so I've got this real problem. I've got a real problem. And I've got a big question then. If God is good and God is loving if God is for us, if God's got a a purpose for our life, how can he uphold that love and purpose for us and at the same time satisfy his justice against our sin? Well, that's where we're going to come back next week and address. But let me give you a, a quick glimpse into the future. This is where our need for Christ becomes real evident the answer to that question of how can god be how can he satisfy his justice and uphold his integrity and at the same time be loving to undeserving people like us is that he sends his son god takes our sin upon himself as jesus lives the perfect life that we couldn't live but dies on a cross the death that we deserved The punishment of God, the righteous punishment, falls on him so that by him absorbing that punishment, he can transfer to us the righteousness that he alone has as the sinless one. That's how God can both be just and the justifier of sinners like us. And so we'll come back to that next week. I look forward to exploring that with you. But I want you to chew on that. Reckon with where you're at. Consider your own heart. Consider your need for God to step in and do something about this irreconcilable problem that you have. And then let's begin to be thankful that there is an answer. There is good news. This is the heart of good news. God does something about it. 
in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. I look forward to seeing you next week.